0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Compete Waffle. Now, this is one we have been anticipating and hoping for for a really long time. And because the person we are interviewing is extremely busy, Um, with a very intense job, but a very important job. It meant a couple of reschedules thrown in with a few complications and a lockdown. And yeah, it's been a good time. However, we finally sat down together and it was just the chat I think we both needed. The catch up was amazing. Um, And as always, just absolutely loved everything that this person was about. And I'm so, so grateful for their time. Now our guest is Shane Jeffrey. Now for those who aren't aware, Shane, isn't your average influencer you don't see him on the socials he isn't extremely active in terms of um sharing voices and content and whatnot because he's extremely busy behind the scenes and he has dedicated his life to helping and supporting those with eating disorder disordered eating and body image concerns and he found that passion as you'll hear by accident almost and he is an accredited dietitian and a sports dietitian that I am just really proud to have in our industry. He has created so much impact and I think why I respect him the most is that everything he's been through and done and created is so focused on the person first. Um, He found a lot of friction as you'll hear in terms of you know the science and not necessarily that translating to the person or the behavior change and It's why he's created what he did and why he's probably really resonated um, into that space of eating disorder and disordered eating and really created so much impact and progression in that space. He is unique in the best possible way and his voice is just filled with compassion and empathy and obsession. And he has created some incredible resources for dieticians Um, but also impacted the lives of many and so his voice today is going to be one that I think will be beneficial for everyone whether you've been through eating disorder or disordered eating yourself or whether you're someone who has lived with it or would like to know more about it um, then this is the podcast for you it is an intriguing discussion it's awesome he is very chill he is one of the most charismatic guys you'll sit down and chat with and so I just know you'll adore it no matter who you are um so I hope you do listen and i hope you enjoy it just as much as i did catching up with shane and we were cut off right at the end there but it was pretty good timing i think it was his son that called and so it cut off the um recording however i think we timed it pretty damn well and he had to leave anyway so um yeah enjoy i will leave all the links in the show notes in terms of how you can reach shane or work alongside his team at river oak health um i will also link um, the Butterfly Fly Foundation if you would like more support or to reach out to someone around disordered eating or eating disorder concerns. And of course, we are there to reach out to as well um, within that disordered eating space, um, but also in the active individual as well. So um, if you wanted to head to competenutrition.com, C-O-M-P-E-A-T, nutrition.com, um, we've got a lot of info there, or you can also um, follow us along on our app, um, which is downloadable on Android or Apple at Compete Nutrition. Um, and then lots and lots, If you've you've probably found us by Instagram or Facebook or um, this podcast. So yes, we do do a lot of content. So even if you just feel ready to learn and be curious and um, be around like-minded people, then please feel free to just follow us at Compete underscore nutrition in um, Instagram land. And there's a whole lot of stuff there to start learning and start embracing this, you know, different way of thinking. And I guess positive relationships with food that can then drip feed into every other area of life so enjoy this chat guys I hope you've had a good week so far I know many are finding it challenging it's been quite an 18 months so lots of thoughts to you and if you feel like any of these you know questions that are prompted by Shane to consider are you or things that you would be concerned about or um, would like more help on then please reach out because that's why we're here. That's what we do um, and it's why we do it. So thanks so much, guys, and looking forward to the chat to come after this one. Cheers. A massive welcome to you, Shane. Thank you so much for joining us. No
1: worries. Thanks. It's good to be here and uh, finally get that bit of a chat with you. It'd be nice.
0: Yeah, look, I wasn't going to mention it, but it is finally because we've had a few little false starts. (laughs) You're a very busy man. So I really appreciate your time and coming to talk to us today.
1: No worries. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to it. And with with everything going on with the Olympics coming up and that sort of thing, it's good to get out of the way and get get fired up for the uh, Aussie dreams.
0: Oh, mate. Well, we've had a good weekend. And as we're recording this, the Boomers had a win as well against the US team in basketball. So I feel like this week has been epic and a really good start to the lead in. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's been awesome, huh? Big week for Aussie Sport, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, no, it's brilliant. And we've connected a couple of times, but I was saying before we press record, this is really just an opportunity for us to catch up, really. And we just happened to press record for you guys to listen to us catch up. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome.
1: <laughs> yeah, Something like efficiency,
0: yeah. eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what we've got to do these days. So, um, Shane, I would love for you to share just a little bit about your journey, because it is um, one that i've heard previously but i think those listening at home are like wow this guy he's a dietitian but also in eating disorders and there's no getting around it like there's it's a female dominant profession so to have someone who's male in eating disorders is extremely valuable and something that is an absolute cornerstone with how much you've added to everything we do so i would love to hear how you ended up where you are today
1: yeah it's a it's a really good question and i um I often talk to this when I do presentations, and um, with the how I got here, I guess my, my my foray into dietetics was was to be a sports dietitian, and that was back in the in, in the early '90s. You know, I and mean, there's probably a handful of them around the country. And I um, I had a two week elective as part of my uni course that I was going to do a, a sport nutrition placement with with Holly Frail. and um, lo and behold, I did my clinical placements. The first one I did really well in and the, the second one I, I didn't do so well in. And um, they said, uh, Shane, you know, you're, you're not quite competent to be a dietitian yet. We need you to go and um, spend some time reading some books and give up that sport nutrition placement. So um, I, I think I ended up spending two weeks surfing on the Gold Coast that that fortnight. <laughs> and um, as a result, I didn't get my sport nutrition placement, but I had to make up another uh, two weeks of clinical work to, to show that I was, um, you know, meeting the conditions of being a dietitian, so to speak. So I, um, so I did that at the Gold Coast Hospital. And the irony of it all was is that I did those two weeks and on the Friday when I finished up, they offered me a locum job. And I thought, well, this is ironic, isn't it? I'm the, I'm the last one in my class to meet the competencies, but the first one to get a job. So that was pretty neat. <laughs> and, um, hey, that's so
2: cool
0: because I could have gone <laughs> anyway and I share frequently that I I had a fail in one of my subjects in uni because I feel like it's one of the best things that actually happened to me which is very interesting right but at the time I was devastated but the turnaround that happened after and that's very similar to you where it opened doors rather than close them
1: oh yeah it was it was it, a similar thing like I was I was I was so frustrated um and you know Back in those days, I had hair down to my bum and earrings, five earrings in each ear and a big goatee. So I wasn't really your typical dietitian yeah. in terms of my appearance and stuff. But anyway, I ended up getting the job at the Gold Coast Hospital and um, just did some regular work. And I was getting a bit disillusioned with um, general dietetics. And I was, I was working in, um, in, in uh, kidney disease and it's very, you know, very specific and I just started thinking around what I was doing. And then at that at that time, about three years after I graduated, I saw my first eating disorder patient on the mental health ward. And I thought, this is awesome. Like this is this is so much better than the, the clinical stuff. So I started um, doing a bit more eating disorder work. And there was a private hospital on the Gold Coast at the time that did eating disorders, drug addiction, and PTSD for um, veteran, you know, returned veterans. And um, so they asked me to go and work with them. So I did some eating disorder work there and then um, went overseas for a couple of years and went to the UK backpacking. And my, my sole intention was to pick potatoes and pour beers in a bar yeah. and um, got to London. And three days after landing, I got offered a job in an eating disorder clinic there. And after, uh, uh, after earning the money of a dietitian, I couldn't go back to earn four pounds an hour for So I So, so I kept, kept doing that for a while um got back to australia and uh the job i was in it had changed ownership so there's no eating disorder work so i did a couple of locums and then um yeah ever since been ended up getting a job in eating disorders in um, a group called bronte foundation footprints of angels and been in eating disorders ever since so um so that's the journey in terms of how i got into eating disorders and then because i've always had that interest in sport nutrition i've I've sort of dabbled in it um, a little bit more but i guess a lot of the work i do in sport nutrition now is really around disordered eating eating disorders um energy deficiency that sort of thing and um trying to get that segue between people improving their relationship with food and also optimizing performance and that sort of thing so so yeah that's my little um little story
0: that's a very cool story. I, I find it fascinating but also you know just the impact that you've had in that space has been really profound and um, I do adore that you kind of found your calling and was just like "Well, head there. You mentioned in um, that kidney disease clinical type of setting you were feeling a little bit disillusioned. What was it that was really not sitting well with you do you feel that kind of led you to start to be curious about other things?
1: Oh, where do you want me to start?
0: That <laughs> no, was... was such a big
1: question. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it was really. Um, it, was, it was really. I, I remember the. I remember the time I was then mm. in a hemodialysis unit talking to a patient, and I was taking a diet history, getting an idea of what they were eating, and and I thought, well, there's error in what they're telling me. There's error in how many millimoles of potassium she should be having, and there's error in what I recommend there's error in her interpretation and even if she goes home and we get none of that error there she's got to do exactly as i'm saying and that's highly unlikely and i thought i'm spending all this time on this minute detail um, for what benefit you know and so in in the end i guess my approach started changing while i was working there i'd go along and ask if they wanted to see a dietician. If they, if they weren't that interested, I'd leave them a name and number and ask them to give me a call if they changed their mind rather than talking to someone who wasn't interested. So yeah. um, so that, in, in some ways, it was, it was all of the error and looking at that really specific, detailed clinical stuff, working with people who are unwell. And the other thing is, um, Leish, is not really get, getting a lot of opportunity to follow people up um as well so whereas with within eating disorders you know we often find that there's still people not really interested in uh in in following our advice but um it's it's a lot more challenging a lot more rewarding and you get more of a longitudinal relationship with people which i really enjoy so but um yeah the 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 detail of the clinical stuff um and working with people who run well with no follow-up was probably the main thing that got me thinking about what i was doing
0: oh we've got such similar stories like obviously in such different settings but that same friction and frustration is so similar of losing you know sight of the actual real impact that we're trying to have and um what we're really trying to translate and what really matters because i think sometimes as a profession we are we do go science first and calculations first and prescription first instead of thinking person first Hmm. And that sounds so similar to the direction we have now gone with um, everything we're doing. So, yeah, it's really intriguing to listen to.
1: Yeah, well, well I, I like the way you put that, you know, in, in terms of it's person first. So I think if you don't engage the person, you've got no one to work with anyway, do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. but that's how that's how I sort of think of it.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I'm I'm positive that that's such a core part of working in eating disorders. I'd love to move into that space now in that, you know, what, what's been the hardest part of working you know full time within that space
1: um, it's it's been interesting well, like it, it's probably been learning to have a low investment in the outcome um, because it's a it's a fairly emotional space to work um, v- very challenging and often working with people who aren't necessarily interested in Uh, being there, often they're there because the doctors ask them to, their parents have asked them to. Sometimes you'll get people who are motivated, but Mm. often there's a high degree of uncertainty, you know, in terms of being there. Um, And and so for me, it's really around having a low investment. So I'll I'll often say to people, you know, when I'm working with someone, I'm 110% committed to helping them do whatever they can do. Mm. But once they leave the office, my job's done. Mm. Um, and not having an investment, because I think if I'm overly invested in the outcome, then I never stop worrying about these people, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that starts impacting on me and my family and what I'm doing. So um, that's probably the biggest learning I, I recommend to all of the people I supervise to try and take that approach, which, which isn't easy because you've got to clock on and clock off. Um, but I think because it is such an emotional area, it's such an important thing to be able to do and really identifying that there is a difference between that commitment and investment, because sometimes you think, you know, maybe it comes along, you know, it comes out the wrong way. You know, I'm not invested in the, in, in the client's outcome. And it's, it's not so much that it's that once we've done our work, I don't have any more influence over what they do. So it's up to them then to start making the decisions and the change and that sort of thing. And, And I think that goes with, um, all clients that we work with, really, as, as dietitians, we can only really do so much. And it's, it's that shared responsibility of change, I guess, that we're really hoping to bring about
0: yeah i love that and i really appreciate you bringing up how difficult it is because it is such an emotional investment as you said like if you're giving everything and have everything relying on that connection which is really important it can seep into all areas of your life including personal life because it's emotionally so draining and i've had people you know and i, I don't work full-time and eating disorders at all but it's you know people are like how do you how do you do that like how do you have the patience how do you have the energy and i feel like that's just one part of how. um people do find it really hard to understand um, eating disorders. And I'd love to hear it from you, like in terms of just bringing some awareness about what this condition is and what these minds are going through, um, would you be able to share some things? Like obviously no one story is the same here and I think that's part of it.
1: Yeah, well it's 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 interesting. And I guess there's you know there's there's probably 50 different ways I conceptualize eating disorders. But in its um in its in, in its simplest form, I, I think that, you know, whether we're talking eating disorders or disordered eating, you know, when we're looking at um, you know, that athlete space individual sort of thing, is there's probably three main areas that that pop up is, you know. For, for one group, it it's really a, um, a fairly innocent path where people are trying to be healthier, um, manage their weight, do things. That leads to some dietary change. That dietary change um, has some sort of positive reinforcement associated with it. That then leads to further change. And over time, one or two dietary changes turning into three or four, five, six, seven, eight... And that becomes really rigid. It becomes hard to let go of. And, and, and we often see that as, as those changes happen, the rigidity really sets in. And one of the reasons it sets in is due to malnutrition or due to energy deficit, where it starts to have an impact on the way that people see the world, I guess, mm. um, relate to food, relate to emotions, that sort of thing. And so that one pathway is, is really associated with dietary change gone bad Um, you know there was never an intention to develop an eating disorder and I guess that's one point to to try and make people who experience disordered eating and eating disorders never really intend to end up where they do Mm. Um, and I often think it's it's a relatively easy place to get to but a really difficult place to get out of Um, so 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 that's one pathway And and the other pathway is is probably more associated with the mental health side of it, um, where the eating behaviour or the eating um, choices serve as a a function in the person's life. So it serves as a a distraction to low mood or anxiety. It might serve as a a distraction to poor performance. Um, It might be people on the cusp of a, a representative team trying to push for that little extra performance. Um, feeling inadequate if they don't make these changes they're not going to move to the next level of competition and in that way the the eating is really serving a, a functional role in their life mm-hmm. and um, that then adds another layer of complexity in terms of change because as you start to support a person having a different relationship with food the the function that they're eating is serving exposes. Um, certain things and that becomes difficult to manage for them because it's not only dietary change but once you pull that dietary change back you're then exposing the inadequacies or the emotional side or the anxiety that then needs to be worked through as well and for that for that reason you know it's often a a multidisciplinary team like you know sport is generally it's not just the one person um, trying to guide Uh, The direction for people, it's often a dietician, maybe a psychologist, maybe a GP and uh, a real multidisciplinary approach, because what we tend to see is that when these things sort of um, become more intense, it not only affects the nutritional side of things and the performance, but it also affects uh, the person's physical well-being um cardiac function that sort of thing and it also starts to affect the way people think and their mental health and emotions so it can it can lead to a really quick spiral where um people experience more low mood and things like that so that's that's one way of conceptualizing it and the other way I think is that you know when when people present for treatment it's trying to understand that even though we want them to give up their eating disorder they're holding onto it because it's serving some sort of purpose. And so if we come along and just say, okay, well, we've got to change this, you know, you're eating sort of bad for you. Let's gain some weight, eat differently, that sort of thing. Um, We're taking away something that rightly or wrongly um, the person values for a reason. And unless we have a conversation around how the person feels about making change and giving that up and the risk involved from their perspective, we, um, will probably find it quite difficult to engage that person enough to make a difference with them
0: wow well that was epic (laughs) i have a lot of questions (laughs) but i really enjoyed listening i was like don't stop that was really good it was a beautifully like summarized kind of you know all those different avenues and i think that's so important because there isn't just this one direction of predictability here or this is going to trigger this it's just So many different things can lead to, you know, a group of um, symptoms and different things. But the reason why someone's there is not necessarily super clear until you start to unravel and until you you start to, you know, treat and listen to that person. And it it can be an extremely vulnerable situation Um, when you're talking around, um, you know, that control piece, but also, um, you know, the ownership and purpose around that eating disorder. One thing. That I've found um, I've accidentally uncovered just through uh, experience is the competitive nature of eating disorder. So, you know, um, sharing stories of eating disorder I always thought would help bring empathy and, you know, um, someone to connect and feel like they're not alone. But in reality, it can trigger these emotions that go opposite of what my intention was. So, you know, I, I found that I, oh, I, I, get, I got jealous that I couldn't restrict as well as she could or um, why can't I have anorexia like she did? And it w- it's been a really interesting journey for me to really better understand the real beast within this mindset that um, people are struggling with. And I'd love to hear from you that competitive nature. How can someone, if they're feeling like that, if they don't feel sick enough to reach out for help how can we start to you know embrace that process i guess
1: yeah i think it's a it's a really good point and it's um i guess one way i think about eating disorders is that they're all so similar but at the same time they're all very different Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um which touches you know on your point of reasoning and that sort of thing um like as a as a general rule like i like to keep life simple generally and the way I think about it, if if, if you're engaging in an eating behaviour that you wouldn't recommend to one of your fellow athletes, then it's probably something that isn't true to your values. So we try and bring it back to a lot of values-based work. And what I tend to find is when, when I'm talking to people I'm working with, um, with regards to... Um, you know, what might be a suitable breakfast or what might be a suitable lunch or what might be suitable for your post-recovery nutrition. Um, the person will often go, well, I don't I don't know what a good breakfast is. You know, I haven't been eaten breakfast for, you know, over a year or something. And then I'll often say, well, you know, if you had to give breakfast for one of your fellow athletes or one of your family members, what would you give them and how much would you give them? And they'll usually give you a, a pretty reasonable answer.
2: Mm.
1: Um, and so... Whether that's me being lazy, getting them to do the work or not, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but I think what it's really trying to do is highlight that when we're working with people with disordered eating and eating disorders, they bring so many resources into the room. And my goal is always to try and use those resources so that when I step away, they've got confidence in trusting their own decision making.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And... Trying to get them, you know, we we often have discussion around values and how you would feed another person. And if if there's a a misalignment between how they feed how they're feeding themselves and the rules they apply to themselves and how they would feed another person, then there's work to be done. Now, whether that's just, well, I've cut out gluten, but I wouldn't recommend anybody else do that, that that's probably a reason to explore why I've cut it out and that sort of thing, unless there's a clinical diagnosis and it could be you know a whole lot of other things that go with that but so so I think the uh, the first port of call for me is always having that values-based discussion and the thing I like about it is it's quite non-judgmental it's non-threatening it's let's just have another perspective on this mm. um, and, and explore it that way and you know Every now and then, you get somebody. Yeah, well, of course, I'd recommend my fellow athlete have one WeePix for breakfast.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: then, then we've got to have another conversation. We need to chat so, more. <laughs> yeah, but in but I often find, you know, in probably ninety nine percent of cases, it's it, it it gets a really good discussion going. You know, you know, um, in an open ended way.
0: Mm, I love that, and, and I love how you touched on. You know, it takes that prescription away. It takes you. Telling someone what to do and instead empowers them to ask the right questions, um, because that's what's going to be the most powerful thing when they leave you um, is being able to ask the right questions so that they can then start to practice their response. And and that was so beautifully put. So um, yeah, it's an incredible like superpower to have as a practitioner, I think, to um, have the confidence to not, you know, jump in and tell all the answers, but actually allow them to ask the right questions. And one of those examples was, you know, what would you feed a fellow athlete? You know, what, what, would, what would be a suitable option for them? Um, because it allows them to take that ownership out of it. And um, I guess identity out of it to then give an answer that's a little bit more um, less personal, less vulnerable.
1: Yeah, for sure. And the, and the other thing I like about that as well is it mm. it's it sort of um, you, you can extend that model in, in terms of, you know, how you might um, talk to another person um, mm. as well. So in, in terms of, um, sorry, my daughter's just coming in <laughs> uh, from school. School's just finished and the school bus has come to the end of the door. Um, so, yeah, the, the other way we extend that is, people with eating disorders are often very critical of themselves um in terms of whether it be performance their nutrition their training that sort of thing and so we try and extend that out um from another values-based perspective in thinking you know would you use that type of language towards another athlete or towards somebody you're training with and you know trying to invite a not only that values-based approach, but also an approach that's tied up with self-compassion and kindness and that sort of thing. And so we're not just changing the food, but we're changing the language around food, the language around the mind, the language around the body, and trying to bring that all together in a more holistic way, Um, which, you know, people can often do reasonably well, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. you actually answered a question I was bound to ask because of that place of judgment and shame, you know, um, the language used around food behaviours or options and the judgment, you know, before, during, after an eating occasion can be really intense and really tough to listen to as a practitioner, because you, you just want to reach out and go, Oh my goodness, like your language is nothing you would use for anyone else. And you know, that shame attached to um, the behavior is just such a powerful thing in a negative way of like just reinforcing and really putting someone in a really hard place. For sure. And, And I think
1: the, you know, I always think, you know, you, you asked me earlier around, you know, um, one of the key things I've done, and I spoke about investment, and and, and the, the other word I keep in mind alongside investment is opportunity. And you know, working with people with disordered eating and eating disorders, I see our role is to create new opportunities. And you know, they might be able to identify the values and identify the language in order to create that opportunity. Then the challenge is to try and apply that, which is often really difficult. And one of the difficulties is because of the functionality or because of the shame or because of um, other things that get in the way. But by planting that seed, you're creating that opportunity for something to be different um, and, you know, really try and support a different perspective on things. Because we often say, you know, when people have disordered eating and eating disorders, they sort of see the world through those lenses. Mm. Um and so what we want to try and do is use these values and um, externalisation of processes to get them to see things without the lenses on, um, which is really tying back to their um, their core self and identity, really.
0: Mm, I love that. You've mentioned a few things in terms of, like, I guess, those eating behaviours and eating rules adding up over time to something that becomes from disorder to eating disorder when um should someone be aware of those behaviors or rules becoming a problem is it always you know clean cut or can it really vary depending on the person is there a kind of question that you can ask someone you mentioned that um you know would you recommend a friend do this i feel like that's a really powerful tool to have in the repertoire is there other questions or different actions that you would say it's probably worthwhile being curious about this and starting to reach out for support
1: yeah, there's um there's two questions that I come back to, and mm-hmm. I often talk about these when I present. And some people go, "Well, Shit, you know, if we, if we if we if we asked everyone those, we'd be sending everyone your way." <laughs> but, but 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 I think the the first one is, you know, does your weight affect the way you feel about yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that that's important because one of the you know, there's a trends that there's a model of eating disorders that that indicates that most eating disorders stem from a concern around weight, shape and size. Mm. So if if somebody's concerned around their weight and it's affecting how they feel, they're probably going to do something to fix that. And most people go to diet or exercise Mm -hmm. Um, and that starts kicking off the rules. So does your weight affect the way that you feel about yourself? And um, the second question you can ask in two ways, are you happy with your eating patterns or are your eating patterns aligned with how you feed somebody else? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that if there's anything there that is probably pointing towards the negative, then that's the point of a conversation because what tends to happen is I think that if we make room for some of these rules to be permissible, we're then putting people on the slippery slide of developing more rules. and so, you know, when we have a look at the number one risk factor for developing an eating disorder and disordered eating, it's, it's dieting,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. So whether it's cutting out a food group or, you know, reducing your energy intake to less than what your body needs or missing your recovery nutrition, um, removing, you know, something like gluten or whatever it may be without a medical reason, all of those things can seem very innocent to start with but if you get some positive reinforcement around that change then you might seek another change and then another change and the difficulty is when these changes are in place the more you practice them the more they become a firmly held belief and there's so unpacking that becomes very very problematic because there's a fear associated with it so you know since i've made these changes i've lost weight if I address them and start doing things differently then I'll gain weight I don't want to gain weight therefore I don't want to make changes so it's navigating that that conversation I think with with um with people but they're they're probably the two questions that I tend to ask and I ask them probably more so as a, as a screening tool um, they're not predictive or diagnostic but i think they're just again fairly neutral ways in opening up a conversation with people um, whether that's as a health professional or between athletes or you know if, well, one of the things that often comes up is you know um, if i'm working with an athlete they might say you know I, i'm pretty sure there's another patient um, or another person in our cycling squad or our training squad who's got an eating disorder too but i don't know how to talk to them and and you know often say you know maybe just they're probably two questions you can probably ask and and they if they're set out of context it can feel a bit weird um but they're they're probably the two that i that i would go to
0: i really love that i think that's a really nice you know simple little actionable thing that i think everyone can consider And it really highlighted to me, even just repeating that back, they're not questions I have, like I've seen these before, of course, and use them in practice. But I think it highlighted to me why it can be so vulnerable for mums to start to consider their eating patterns once they have kids. Because, of course, then having to have that question of like, well, how... It, is this how I'm eating? How I would then reflect that back on my child. And that's when they're really having to have those really tough conversations internally, but then also reach out for help. And I encourage that hundred percent, like it can be really tough, but it's really worthwhile having that conversation because it's such a beautiful journey to recovery and it is possible. And you're never too old. I think this is the piece too. It's, you know, just because I think there is this thing that eating disorder is something that happens to only young people, we need to make sure that it's never something that just because it's common doesn't mean we settle on it being normal and you're never too old to actually feel and see recovery.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. And I guess the, you know, it's probably a good time to try and clarify, you know, what an eating disorder is and what eating disorders are, because, you know, when, when, when I talk to groups, I'll often say, you know, when I say the word eating disorder, what do people think? And, most people think of anorexia, um, you know, people who are thin, underweight, not eating enough. But anorexia only really represents around about 3% of eating disorders. And then you have bulimia nervosa, which represents around about 20%. And then you have binge eating disorder, which represents nearly 50-odd percent. And the remainder are, are probably subclinical, disordered eating, that sort of thing. But, you know, so you're the most common presentation for eating disorder is not somebody who is underweight and not eating and starving. It's people who are probably at a more reasonable weight, maybe even slightly heavier, who are having difficulties with restricting mixed up with periods of, of binge eating, overeating, feeling out of control, that sort of thing. Um, and so I think that's just an important thing for people to keep in mind as well, in terms of just not looking for the people with anorexia.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so glad we clarified that. Probably should have put that at the start. But anyway, here we are. (laughs) You mentioned it before, um, I guess, how do I reach out to someone that I'm concerned about? And I feel like this is such a core part of what people do feel really um, scared of. And there is a fear around, oh, well, if I say something, I'll make it worse. Or if I say something, I'm going to have to have all the answers and know what to do. Um, what's your recommendation, I guess, if you've noticed that someone is showing those signs that we've spoken about or you are concerned about someone, what, are, what is something that someone can action, whether it's in the sporting environment, in the home, with a friend, what, what is something that we can do to help?
1: It is, it is um, having a conversation, I think, um, because really in that situation you've got two choices. One is say nothing mm. or one is say something. Um, and I think if you say nothing, you're in some way then, not, not um, overtly, but you're supporting that behaviour um, and encouraging it in, in some way through not saying something. Um, so I think it's much, much better to, to say something. Mm-hmm. Now, the point that you raised around, you know, I'm worried that I'm going to say the wrong thing, um, is probably the number one barrier um but i can remember a, a, i was working at a clinic called um the bronte foundation back in early 2000s and we were having a staff meeting looking at this and the director at the time jan Cullis, she said as long as as long as what you're saying is coming from the heart it's probably impossible for you to say anything wrong and, and i love that because you know if you if it's coming from a genuine place and you're 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 just expressing a genuine concern then you can't influence how that person reacts you know they might blow you off they might get defensive they might be welcoming we don't know what their reaction is going to be but the one thing i will say is that being stuck in an eating disorder or disordered eating is is not a fun place to be um as, as as much as what it sometimes gets painted differently you know people who experience this stuff generally don't want to be there. Um, You know, that they'd love to get better, but it's just the the journey is quite challenging. And so, you know, it's definitely worth having a conversation um, because they might be hankering for somebody to to say something because they feel so ashamed and embarrassed. They can't, you know, communicate that outwardly. and, and the, so if they, you know, if, if they are receptive to that, then you've done something positive. But if they if they become defensive or they blow it off or whatever, then, you know, at least you've voiced your concern. And, and I think that's better than not saying anything, to be honest. Um, because who knows, you know, further down the track, you know, if you're still involved with them, they might feel confident enough to come back and say something to you at a time when they're struggling or whatever so it it sort of opens up the door a little bit even if that's not the right time for them to hear it
0: yeah it's actually what I've heard from those um, with an eating disorder is like they always gravitate back to the person who reached out even if they blew them off to start with they're the people that they reach out to when they feel ready or feel ready to talk and I, I thought that was really nice because it just allowed you to have the you know as the person reaching out to help it's like I have permission for them to blow me off because I I know that at least i can be a safe place when they're ready and that's okay and that i think helps you know because it can be a really hard thing to go oh my gosh this could turn badly on me or like "What, what will this do i don't have the answers but yeah i think that's a really nice way to put it um it'd be remiss of me not to um bring up i guess you know what recovery looks like um and the incredible impact you've had with your raves protocol and I would love to hear it in your words about, um, I guess, where this came from and also what it's allowed for you to do and impact in practice.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Well, it, it came from a, a place a while ago where I was just sort of doing my own clinical practice Then we were bringing on some some new dietitians and I was asked to give them some training and I thought, well, how am I going to train them? You know, I've got to find some way of simplifying what I do because it's such a complex area. Yeah. and. Um, as I said earlier, I like to keep things simple anyway. So I thought, well, what, what do I do? You know, what are the processes I go through? And the, the first thing is always trying to establish a regular eating pattern um, because that, the evidence is that eating regularly reduces binge eating and then it also creates a platform for people to get adequate nutrition. So the first thing is regular eating. Um, the second thing is uh, adequate eating, so trying to fuel your body well. Uh, for performance Um, and that has a number of domains i guess in terms of the the quality of the nutrition and the balance of it and making sure you're giving your body enough energy Um, so we look at regularity and adequacy Um, then we start looking at variety Um, and variety really challenges food rules so someone might be of the belief that Brown rice is the best carbohydrate for me to eat alongside sweet potato, and they're the only things I can have that have carbs in them, Um, which is okay if you're preparing your own food in your own house. But as we know, athletes and people who play sport find themselves outside of their own environment all the time, travelling perhaps, and so trying to understand that whether you have brown rice, white rice, sweet potato, white potato, couscous noodles, by the time it's processed through the body's digestion, it's, it's all gonna give you carbohydrate. Um, so we try and work on flexibility in food choices. Then we work on uh, eating socially, which again, is very important for athletes in terms of being able to feel comfortable eating food that's been prepared by others mm. um, and portioned up by others, that sort of thing. And then the last thing we look at is spontaneity. Um, so being flexible um and that's important i think because life doesn't always go to plan i, I know mine doesn't i'm sure most people don't <laughs> um, as, as as we discover when, when my daughter walks through the door but um it's
0: hungry clock it's a hard time that three thirty after school
1: <laughs> yeah yeah so, so so i guess for me recovery looks like a couple of things it it embodies those key principles of the raves model mm. um so eating regularly, giving your body enough fuel, having flexibility in your food choices with variety, being able to participate in social situations, whether it be Christmas, Easter, birthdays, you know, staff um, gatherings, that sort of thing, and being flexible. And then the, the last part of it, I think, comes back to that values-based approach, mm. you know, which is really about trusting your own decisions. And... And I think one thing that's important is, you know, to come back to that first part of your question around what recovery looks like. Recovery isn't pure. Um, you know, I think in today's society, which is very diet-centric, you know, there's a lot of people out there with, without an eating disorder, without disordered eating, who worry about weight, who worry about their eating, who worry about their food choices, how they're feeding their kids, um, who worry about those types of things. But they don't—they don't put a significant amount of time into addressing it and fixing it. So they might have those concerns, but they'll be a bit more fleeting.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so, you know, I always say to people, you know, in recovery, you'll probably still have concerns around your weight, and you probably still have concerns around your eating. That's just what happens. You know, you—you mm-hmm. you could be triggered by a, you know, women's fitness magazine while you're in in the queue at the at, at Woolies getting the groceries. Yeah. You know. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: So it's more about building up resilience to manage these things in the longer term, rather than to thinking that, um, you know, they're not going to be part of my life ongoing, because I think that's setting an unrealistic expectation for, for anyone
0: really. Absolutely. Like there are pieces of this environment we can't control <laughs> there. Is, it is everywhere. And as you said, you, you won't be able to control it. You might control your social media feed beautifully, um, but then head to Coles and <laughs> see the magazines and whatnot. So yeah, it's going to be an ever, you know, and, and every aspect of food is that resilience piece, right? It's like what action, what's the strength and speed of this action I can take in this moment of adversity and that adversity can mean anything in all different types of things and that's exactly what you're showing your clients which is really really cool and I think setting themselves up for not perfection this is going to be a journey but every time you're making a new decision or changing or experiencing you're going to get better at it and you're going to have a new reaction you might and your reaction might be better it might be faster and and that's that resilience building so yeah that's really cool
1: yeah, well, I think, with, I think without resilience, you, um, you run the risk of any change you make not being sustainable. Mm. And, and, you know, you, you sort of want to get on top of this stuff sooner rather than later, and you probably only want to do it as, as few times as possible. Mm. So um, I think resilience really builds sustainability into, into any change that, that takes place.
0: 100 percent we um we have lots of you know fitness professionals nutritionists and things all talking food space including influencers and whatnot as well it's a very blurry line of um accreditation and where what you can say and what you can't say one thing um that is found hard by fitness professionals who might be doing everything right in terms of you know staying in their lane knowing what they can talk about when it comes to food but being aware of when to refer on can be really difficult to understand. So what constitutes disordered eating to eating disorder, what value, like what resonates is like, okay, well, this is probably beyond my scope of practice. Do you have any advice for, you know, those that are listening who might be in the fitness sports space on when is okay in terms of nutrition advice and when we might be considering to refer on to the um, larger team? Yeah, well, I think,
1: um, it's a really good question and i think from a um nutrition advice perspective it's it's really about you know trying to stay in in your lane um depending on what your fitness professional mm. background is mm. um and, and i also think that that lane varies within professions depending on the training that a person's had um and and their the qualifications and those sort of things so it's difficult to put you know for example all personal trainers in the one box because they've that they um, might have particular interest. They might have done further training, that sort of thing. But again, I think that when to refer on is all based on screening. So I would encourage fitness professionals to be doing some sort of screening of the people they're working with um, and trying to bring it back to those two questions we discussed earlier um, around, you know, does weight affect the way you feel about yourself and, you know, does um, food affect the... Are you happy with your eating, or do you do you eat in a way that you recommend to others? Because if, if they're negative, then it's likely that the person might be engaging in excessive exercise, or they might be engaging in unhealthy eating behaviors, and it might just be opening up a conversation. You know, it could be saying, "Well, is there anything you're doing about that at the moment?" And um, you know, again, it's the the one thing about those questions is they're very, very broad. Um, but it's just starting a conversation and, you know, if people are interested in seeking help, they'll start talking and then as they start talking, it's about trying to refer on and um, the, the challenge there, I guess, is trying to refer on to people who have experience in disordered eating and eating disorders and, you know, COVID has seen an explosion of people accessing services for eating disorders and disordered eating um and part of that you know comes from a whole range of reasons but i think in in this space it's 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 much better to to be safe than sorry so having a conversation referring on to people who have experience in that in that space and then um maintaining open communications around what's what's happening and how it's being managed moving forward
0: Yeah, fantastic. What is your thoughts around um, that rise in referrals for eating disorder, disordered eating um, throughout COVID? Do you feel like that was happening anyway? Or what's the environmental shift that's caused that increase?
1: Well, there's probably a couple of factors. It's a good good question, Leish. I think one of them is that um, about four months before COVID hit, Medicare released some funding uh, specific for eating disorders. Um, so that made treatment a little bit more affordable um, and accessible to people. So we started seeing more people accessing treatment there, but when, when COVID kicked in, you know, there's a lot of talk around um, isolation, lack of activity, people eating differently, weight gain. Um, for some people, just that lifestyle change caused a lot of anxiety um, which led to eating changes as well. So, so I think the, the environmental shifting with COVID um, and the anxiety around that relating to food, eating, weight, exercise has um, has probably been really amplified. And for those people who are somewhat vulnerable anyway, they've sort of picked it up and, and, and run with it and, and probably ended up making some decisions that have put them in a difficult place.
0: Yeah, it's really tough. And it comes back to that need to, you know, really take that judgment away and shame away and start that conversation of acceptance and kindness, um, you know, with curiosity of what's going on, but also, you know, the why behind that, because it is a really deep question and there's a lot going on. And even a conversation I had today, um, you know, just around binge eating and you know we need to make sure that we're not meaning this of like oh i've I fucked it up again i can't believe i've done this i'm such a failure what you know that shame around that behavior and being disgusted in that behavior when really if we think about oh hang on what brought me to this moment there's so many different things and so many different factors and very rarely is it the binge it's everything you know beforehand that we need to consider and um, be curious about
1: that's right and 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 you know it's it, it's a good point because you know not many people who engage in binge eating find it that helpful Um, and it is it is quite shameful and that sort of thing and so from that perspective it um it can be difficult to talk about and i often often say you know rather than focusing on the fact that you've binged and seeing that as a negative thing let's have a look at what we can learn you know let's look at it as a learning opportunity what if you're in that same situation tomorrow what could you do differently what brought you to this situation? the emotions, the choices, you know, the circumstances. And let's explore that because, the, you know, the answer to reducing the binge eating lies there rather than stop binge eating.
0: Yeah, Um, Yeah, absolutely. And actually, we've probably missed a really important thing. Um, What's the difference between binge eating and overeating? How can someone decide if, okay, they've talked about binging a lot this episode, is that me or am I just overeating?
1: Yeah, so so there's two types. Well, two ways, I guess, of defining binge eating. There's what we call um, subjective binge eating and then there's objective binge eating. And so subjective binge eating is when somebody feels as if they've eaten too much, but it's probably within the realms of normal eating. So somebody might eat, I don't know, say a full ham and salad sandwich, but they feel they've eaten way too much and they might describe that as a binge. Um, Whereas the way we... Define a binge in eating disorders is really more in, as an objective binge, which is really where there's excessively large amount of food consumed in an out of control manner. Mm. Um, so people often feel out of control when they're binging. Um, they feel like they can't stop. They feel like they haven't got a choice. Um, it's sort of like the, the switch gets turned on and, and, and they're away. Mm. um so the the two main distinguishing features are that it's it, an excessively large amount of food consumed in a short amount of time and also that there's that association of feeling out of control
0: mm. Beautiful point. um i i just realized the time are you okay to keep talking <laughs>
1: um i'm probably going to have to finish up yeah i've, yeah. Got, a, I've got i've got somewhere else to be but i'd, I'd, I'd love to keep chatting obviously. i
0: know that's right i just thought i'd check because i was like, oh wow that went really really quick um i will finish up what is um i guess the one piece of advice you'd like to leave people with before we finish up today
1: um put you i think that there's there's um when we're looking at athletes and um, people who are active, there is a higher incidence of disordered eating and eating disorders. So, I, you know, I guess the main advice is that if you have concerns around, you know, what's happening for you or people around you, mm. um, be brave, be bold, be vulnerable, and say something. Because you know that that decision you make to say something could be the difference to somebody, you know, getting help early or, mm. you know, going further down a path that's going to be a lot more difficult to get out of.
0: Yeah, it is a lot easier and a lot less raw to reverse disordered eating than it is to reverse eating disorder.
2: Totally,
0: yeah. If yeah. we catch it early, yeah, never think, oh, I'm not unwell enough or, oh, it's just a small thing. It's really, really nice to get onto it quickly. Thank you so much for joining the conversation with Shane. I hope you loved meeting him and getting to know just a small part about who this guy is, what he's all about, and what he's achieving because it's all big things. It's all really impactful stuff and all very influential, both for the dietitian side, um, but also for the clients he's working with day to day the ground in his facility. So um, there's just so much to learn here, so much to take in, so much to question and be curious about. And I feel like every time I talk to Shane, I just leave with more questions or curiosity and passion to get better and learn more and be more to the person that I'm working with. He has an innate ability to understand the person and the behavior. And yes, use science and best practice to guide that intervention. But first and foremost, it really guide that realistic approach that achieves the person first. And that's what achieves progress. That's what achieves um, connections. if you are resonating with any of the conversation that Shane has brought up today, if some of those questions really went, wow, that's me or gosh, that's me, please know you're not alone. Just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. And that normalcy is what you should be seeking. We want you to feel good. We want you to be achieving. We want you to be your best self. And so you'll find links to River Oak Health, which is where Shane works in the um, show notes. You'll also be able to reach out to us anytime on the socials. Sometimes that feels a safer so we are present on Instagram and Facebook so private messages in there any any time there's also email if you would like to chat a little bit more in depth or if you wanted to just take action today with absolutely no pressure just download our app there is no pressure in that at all it has some recipes it has some you know curiosity pieces and then when you're feeling ready you can upgrade to start working with a dietitian and that's where we are with you every step of the way in every moment and every challenge because that's where that support means the most and that's where we can start you really learning in context in a really safe environment where you feel that that access and that support is your safety net to you know allowing you to fail sometimes because that is what this road is about it is not easy it is vulnerable it's uncomfortable but we so believe in you and recovery is possible so thank you so much again for listening thanks for joining us as always we are a small podcast that loves to grow so if you have the opportunity to leave a rating uh, if you can comment any of those types of things share on your stories whatever you feel comfortable with it absolutely means the world to get our voice out there and start to impact more and more people just like you so thank you so much and until next week let's chat again bye